and a big issue around the whole AI, statistics AI field is around continual learning. And how do they even, how do you start to think about uh, that in a regulated um, space? You know, how can we trust algorithms that are looking to uh, improve themselves uh, over time while still ensuring that they meet all of the necessary uh, performance uh, metrics and it's, an, it's a it, you know obviously the more complex the model the more opaque the model the more challenging that gets because you you know if you if you train if you retrain your model or you update your model based on a kind of on recent patients you, you don't know how that's going to disrupt the model for other types of patients and so just thinking about very I think there's a there's a really exciting and, and you know challenging area around um, surveillance of algorithms and ensuring that we can do continual learning safely. The other nice thing about that is that it sort of it bootstraps machine learning folks that we will essentially never work ourselves out of a job because we're either creating the algorithm that monitors something or we're creating the algorithm that monitors the monitor. Um, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> We'll need at least five or six steps, uh, definitely. Hi, everyone. Today's guest is Chris Holmes. He's a professor of biostatistics at Oxford University and director for health and medical sciences at the Alan Turing Institute. The world's a confusing place. I hear that Chris has all the answers, so we're going to talk to him and see what he knows. Chris, welcome to the show. Um, so maybe for those who aren't as familiar with your research, um, could we just sort of hit on the main themes between digital health? I've always think of you as sort of like a statistical genomics guy, um, but you also have the biostatistics. How do these things work together just to get our terminology right so we can appreciate what, what you're up to? Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Dan. Thanks uh, again for the invitation. Um, so, I mean, my background was really uh, started off in, in kind of mathematical statistics, Bayesian statistics, and then got heavily kind of interested in statistical genetics and genomics, which is when I moved to Oxford like 16 years ago. And then more recently taking up uh, the directorship or program directorship for health at the Alan Turing Institute, which is the UK's National Institute for AI and Data Science, has kind of broadened up. Um, application areas across you know genomics and genetics and now into kind of digital uh into digital health so um i don't think there's any kind of uh, clear dividing line in in my my sense in other than you know at the moment even though there's quite a lot of sequencing and genetic and genomic data out there it tends to be very kind of study uh, specific or cohort specific whereas digital health is often a lot broader in terms of the populations that we, uh, we, we have access to. Yeah, the, actually, that's already a super interesting point. So could you tell us a bit about that sort of what, how are people collecting data for genomic studies right now, if it is cohort specific, because I guess a lot of people in the more data science area, when they think of digital health, they're thinking of like wearables, and just you like their pop them on people as they roam about, or if you're really scientific and reserved about it, You'll have a very specific patient cohort that you're applying them to. How? What? What is sort of the thought process behind collecting data 
genetic data for studies these days? Yeah, I mean, so in the UK in particular, which is the one, of course, um, I know a, a lot about, and I think it's worthwhile distinguishing uh, kind of oncology and cancer studies from non-oncology because there's such a, a big kind of divide in terms of the focus of the genetics. Uh, so for for non-oncology studies, uh, the main sequencing of kind of germline genetics has happened um, within the UK within these kind of longitudinal cohorts. So, you know, the shining example is UK Biobank, which has uh, genomics data or genetic data on half a million individuals. It's a prospective cohort, which means we've collected a lot of other phenotypes or measurements on them, including, you know, 40,000 will be 100,000 brain images. 100,000 whole body scans, we got Fitbit data on 100,000 individuals. So the kind of large scale sequencing and, and germline genetics, that's the genetics you've inherited uh, through your from your mum and dad, tends to be in these kind of larger uh, prospective longitudinal cohorts. So it's quite distinguished or distinct from, from, say, cancer studies, where we will typically be sequencing uh, tumors and trying to understand things like uh, tumor evolution. Yeah, on the issue of the UK biobank, because obviously you know it is perspective. Uh, to to uh, whatever extent you can comment on it, how much sort of like perspective planning was done on that, as opposed to just saying like obviously it's an expensive undertaking and it's an immense data set. Um, yeah. But if you just collect data for the sake of collecting data sort of the scientific and the experimental value of these things um, would be diluted. So what sort of planning and thought process has gone into this thing? Like, how can we maximize this, uh, the value of this? You know, not just for the data scientists to play around with, but like for the Anna shoes of the world who are, you know, those those clinical scientists. Yeah, it's a good, uh, it's a very good question. So I sit on the, I should say, I sit on the International uh, Advisory Board uh, for UK Biobank. And um, so it's a, it's a random survey, so it's postcode. So, in sorry, in the in the UK, uh, we have postcodes, which is um, which for the post office de delivers uh, your letters to your homes. And so, it's a random survey across the UK, and people participants uh, were invited uh, to join UK Biobank, and with clear instructions that this would then be followed up over time, and people consented to that. And if you consented to that, you were then sent in saliva uh, and you agreed uh, to participate in kind of active surveillance. Now, it started off with really just a skeleton of very simple kind of phenotype measurements. But the beauty of it is it, is it just kind of grows over time as we add more and more measurement. And the way that those measurements are decided typically are by the clinical community as well as some of the major health or medical charities. So, you know, a big charity could come in and say, look, we really want to get brain imaging in on the UK Biobank. And of course, that costs a lot. Um, the participants of UK Biobank have been amazingly kind of gracious with their time in, in providing time to come in and, and be measured. So it's kind of grown organically. And as it's grown in the the breadth uh, of it of its measurements, it's been seen to kind of add increasingly value. And and now I think, you know, whereas there was some debate at the time on about 
what was its utility for scientific research that's now unquestioned it's seen as a you know a universal uh, uh, fantastic resort and what's amazing about it is any researcher in the world can just apply for access to that data free of charge well subject to uh, uh, just a processing application charge Hey folks, we're a few minutes into the show. This is usually the part where the podcaster talks about their sponsor or something. I'm not going to do that, but I will ask two things. One, if you leave a like or a dislike based on your preference, and also let me know what you think about this topic and also what topics you like discussed on future episodes of the show. That's it. Enjoy the episode. Yeah, that that is really interesting. If you don't mind, uh, since there's uh, sort of a uh, since for the American audience, there might be a little bit of a question about this. When you're talking about charities um, in the role that essentially these charities play um in essentially research decisions what we're talking about is in, uh, are basically that um there are for a given disease that there are essentially these uh conglomerates or interest groups that um obviously have an interest in looking after the patients and ensuring that uh, medical research and medical focus arrives at those so um for example uh uh cancer research uk would be one of those um the one for diabetes is escaping my head at the moment, but um, essentially that there are these. Uh, yeah. how, how would you describe these uh, for Peter yeah, Warren's interest? Yeah, big kind of medical charities: Cancer Research UK, British Heart Foundation, Diabetes Research UK, and those rate those those raise funds mm-hmm. um, through public. Uh, will go out and raise money for these and as part of what they do, they do a lot of patient support. But part of what they do is invest in research. And of course, their scientists say about, you know, the utility of having, um, you know, measurements on half a million individuals that go forward in uh, that go forward in time and, of course, start to accumulate more and more um, outcomes as that population ages. So uh, the, the medical charities have been a big supporter of UK Biobank over its life. Yeah. And it, just as a quick sign, it seems like they are also uh, a very good source of domain knowledge for statisticians and uh, data scientists and people involved in that. If you can essentially talk to um, these charities, because they do understand um, essentially the clinical interface. Yes. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. So, so A, that they fund, you know, leading research scientists in that area, but also they're very, very connected in with the public and patient population which is increasingly important in, in the, both the communication of research, but also in in helping to, to kind of focus the questions and understand, um, you know, to, to get the right questions asked of the data. Mm-hmm. And I guess the most important thing is, of course, that their charity shops are great ways to fill out your bookshelves. Um, so if you yeah. want to fill out a bookshelf for about, you know, 10, 10, 10 bucks true. or whatever, yeah. Um, yeah. Cool, Very yeah. Um, so... Uh, I think we've we've laid a bit of the landscape here. Um, and so when people are talking about uh, digital health nowadays, you know, um, you're if you're a director of digital health at uh, the our health and uh, medical sciences at Allen Turner Institute, how do you um, how do you prioritize what needs to be working? Because obviously you do have a large number of there's an infinite number of interesting things to research. How do you sort of select those? Um, and who are the influencers and how do you make those decisions? Yeah. Um, I mean, a lot of it comes down to working, you know, through working with leading scientists. So 
I think, you know, where I work, which is very much at the kind of the interface of statistical science and applications, it's about um, working with leading scientists who understand the kind of research questions. And it really is a kind of what what I enjoy is that um, collaboration around refining the research question around what will the data support. So there's many interesting research questions that we might have and scientists might come to us, but then the data doesn't actually kind of, you know, can't support that, that inferential question. And so it's that communication piece around, you know, given access to this data or potentially designing studies that can gather data, you know, what would that allow for one to have kind of uh, uh, sufficient, uh, you know, precision in able to kind of answer questions of interest? And I think it's through that. And then the other kind of interesting part with the Alan Turing Institute is that we're looking for kind of grand, you know, we focus on the kind of grander challenges. So the ones where a single kind of university might not be best placed to answer, it's the ones where we want to pull together uh, leading researchers from either across different disciplines and across different institutes to focus in on, on a, you know, on a particular a, a research challenge so I would say it's a refinement we might start off with conversations around you know a general you know grand challenge like treatment heterogeneity mm-hmm. how do we start to understand treatment heterogeneity and then you know through conversations we might break that down and we've got a concrete example of that was on trying to understand treatment heterogeneity and 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 identifying that if if you want to understand treatment heterogeneity what is one of actually kind of building blocks is missing data because, you know, tr- and, and it might not see that apparent, but treatment heterogeneity, you need to pull together different studies. You know, if you really want to understand how does a treatment vary across different populations or in different conditions, it, automatically you are starting to think, okay, well, we need to pull studies together. And then, you know, increasingly when you pull studies together, study A might have measured you know these measurements and study b might have an overlap of that but Mm -hmm. but some things you know might have you know might have genetics but no imaging the other one might have imaging you know and no biomarkers and so you're suddenly into this world where you have these really structured block missingness in your data and so and that then kind of that's when we start to get into the kind of the, the excitement of it is to say okay if we want to understand this bigger challenge we're going to have to first of all crack this problem, and that's it's, that's the way I tend to kind of work. Is start off with a fairly high level question, and then start to drill that down and, and refine that into you know the steps that are needed in order to get there. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, would I I like this uh, the block missingness and just sort of by way of analogy is this block missingness a good reason to expect why there might be certain research topics that are beyond the ken or beyond the uh, capability of an individual research and dis- institution. So the idea is like, there might be some, if you're trying to connect all these dots, you'll essentially have block missingness based on expertise and specialty and focus. Um, is that part of it? Yeah, ab- absolutely. And again, it's like one of these things where, you know, we're, we teach, you know, of course, we teach missing data as part of statistics courses. And, you know, any good statistician will know, well, if you've got missing data, that you impute that's an imputation problem but Mm -hmm. you know if i'm missing you know half a million genomes or i'm missing you know fifty thousand brain images 
you're not going to be able to impute that. And so, so that's a kind of an open question is, you know, how can we start to build, you know, algorithms or statistical models with good properties for inference that can support modern data structures uh, mm-hmm. with all of the kind of messiness that they come with? Yeah. Um, since we, we've talked about, you've mentioned data support before, um, and now I guess it's the second time. Um, and I think this is a really important issue. It's actually one of the places where, uh, you know, early career people listen up. This is a place where you can be useful to other folks. Um, really understanding what sort of, how the data can support a hypothesis or how the data can support a particular algorithm. And if you can identify sort of gaps in the logic, if you will, the logic of these systems um, early, you can prevent them from sort of being disastrous or really undermining research progress. So for example, you might, um, you might have a, a research group who's very specialized on a certain, uh, we'll just say a certain algorithm to keep it simple. Um, but the nature of the data that's coming in might not actually um, align very well with that algorithm for the medical outcome that you care about. And so if you can identify those things early, you can sort of you know figure out how to massage it, work around it, uh, enhance the data collection so that you can answer those questions. Um, and uh, all, just so basically seeing misalignment between algorithm and the data that you're actually collecting or the data, the algorithm and the clinical outcome and the type of like typically like a clinical interaction with your algorithm. I think that those are very important things. Um, and if I can guess, the level that you're talking about it is also just like, can the data actually support the scientific hypotheses that you care about? Yeah. What, what, what can, do you have some uh, some good examples of that? Because uh, I just talked about it in the abstract, but if you have some examples, that'd be appreciated. Yeah, I think you know. So a classic example is on causal inference. You know that often you know people will come in and there'll be a you know we have kind of concrete questions about trying to understand a mechanism mm-hmm. of disease, and then that aligns with does the data support you know uh, uh, support causal inference, and then, and then of course if it's an observational study. There's a question around: Can we realistically uh, account for uh, confounders, and and what's the potential for unmeasured uh, confounders? And often we'll be in a situation where we just say, well, you know, actually, you know, the data is just not there uh, to support it. Um, you know, the other areas which you know I do a lot of my work, not all, but majority of my work would start off from a Bayesian perspective. Mm-hmm. And in, in Bayesian inference, there's a very close connection between being able to simulate the system, you know, a generative, you know, people talk about generative models. So the ability to simulate a system and to be able to do inference uh, on the system. And, and that again will tends to ha- kind of highlight, well, if we've got a research question, you know, if you're Bayesian, you're thinking, okay, so that's a question about a model and build a generative model uh, for this system and then you've got this data access to this data and then then you could kind of highlight a mismatch that you know if i if i want to ask this question i'd have to be able to kind of simulate these outcomes we'll be able to kind of simulate these population outcomes in order to be able to answer that say inference question uh, and that again would um you know kind of tends to highlight kind of mismatches between the, the data that you have or the data, you know, and the data you would like. Mm-hmm. That, that, yeah, that is an interesting point. Um, if you don't mind, uh, just a completely impertinent question. 
Bayesian nonparametrics. What's more important, the Bayesian or the nonparametrics? <laughs> um, well, I think when I say Bayesian, I always think of, you know, uh, and my position has changed, but I think of prediction. Mm -hmm. So this very close kind of link between predictive inference, ability to kind of simulate or predict a system. And um, and so when I see Bayesian nonparametrics, I mean uh, kind of uh, very general flexible systems mm -hmm. or structures for creating generative models. And so I uh, that that's what I that uh, that's what I see. I think the nonparametrics is is really critical if you are Bayesian mm -hmm. because um, all of Bayesian inference takes place within something we call, you know, M-closed, which is formally assumes that the model is true. And therefore, you need to be kind of really careful that all your inferential statements are made within a closed hypothesis space, we say. And so if that's the case, you want to make sure that you allow a little bit of wriggle room Mm -hmm. in your models to kind of capture kind of idiosyncrasies in the data that you might not have thought about. And so when I think about Bayesian nonparametrics, a lot of the time thinking about robustness against parametric assumptions, mm -hmm. which is now you can do that through careful, uh, you know, model criticism and, uh, you know, George Box kind of iterative process of model, you know, building, model refinement, uh, but the kind of if you're using non-parametric priors, it kind of builds that robustness in uh, in from the beginning. So um, it's a it's a really I, f I find it an increasingly kind of useful tool in what we do. Yeah, I've I was always thought of the non-parametric aspect of that if you're essentially building a system of reasoning about your the nature of the model, the nature of the I guess the physical dynamics or the physical real world and the data that you have that. Um, those assumptions are the most like foundational assumptions. And deductively, if you get those wrong, you're most likely going to be stepping off much more rapidly. And so essentially what the non-parametric aspect does is essentially, I view it as sort of like widening your deductive base. So we widen sort of the assumption space on which then you build your deductive reasoning. Um, so that's well Yeah, I mean, there's a price to pay, of mm -hmm. course. Yeah. Is um, that, you know, more or less, you know, there's only one or two processes to work with in the Bayesian non-parametric. So the Dirichlet process is the absolute kind of workhorse mm -hmm. of, of Bayesian non-parametrics. And so, uh, you know, if we're working in a kind of set of parametric models, of course, there's a lot more structure and prior information that one can put into there. Um, but uh, so I think that in some sense, they kind of, uh, they, they, they complement uh, one another. I mean, if you think, you know, and often you would want to probably use uh, use both, um, you know, to understand where, you know, if there are differences arise, uh, uh, major differences in terms of inference, mm -hmm. inferential uh, statements that arise from applying kind of basic non-parametric inference to kind of parametric inference, then it highlights an, an aspect of, of, of the, the data and you something that wasn't contained within your parametric assumptions. Oh, yes. Yeah, that, that, that is an interesting point. Um, if you don't mind, you said something interesting a little bit ago where you're talking about uh, uh, you think about prediction and sort of the, the prediction task. And um, could you talk a little bit that, about that more? And I'll just sort of like prime the topic where um, one of the things that I was always thinking about when I, when I design models is their predictive capacity. Because when I think about science, essentially, the 
grand challenge of scientific methodology is that we're trying to make we're trying to say i know this thing well enough that i can tell you what will happen in the future you know uh, essentially like chemistry if you don't know what what reaction will happen between two chemicals you don't understand it well and so essentially it's saying like we understand these things well enough that we can make predictions and well i know that's not the end all of um scientific inference it is something where it says like we understand this process well enough and i tried to apply that intuition to my own model building saying like you know as opposed to something like interpolation or some uh useful explanatory aspect that if my models could predict something that is difficult to predict it must surely know something it must have learned something as opposed to nothing um but anyway i, I assume that you have uh an intuition about this, but what, what, what sort of brought, brought you to that thought about uh, the value of prediction? Well, I think it's, so it's kind of, it's hidden away a little bit mm -hmm. in the, in the kind of the Bayesian construction, but it's really at the heart of all of Bayesian inference, because, you know, if we think about the likelihood function, you know, formally, you know, sampling distribution, uh, sampling probability distribution for the data, that is, you know, as it stands predictive, you know, and the, the kind of beautiful thing about Bayesian Bayes rule is it turns something that's very hard to specify, the thing you want, which is the posterior distribution on a parameter of interest, mm -hmm. into something that's much easier to think about, which is oh, what was the probability of observing the data that was observed if this was the true parameter. So specifying the likelihood is a predictive statement. So it's, oh, what's the kind of generative probability of generating this data set? you know, given this set of, of parameters in, in that probability distribution. But, but more so, you know, as we know, if we start to think about model choice and, you know, the base factor, which is the, something that Bayesians would use to compare two models, those are, those are two predictive statements. I mean, the, the, formally, the base factor is just a ratio of two predictive statements under the prior. So, in fact, the marginal likelihood of prior predictive says it's, you know, a priori, how probable was, say, model one mm -hmm. to generate the data that was observed in compared to model two? And because those statements are made before the data has arrived, they're joint probability statements. So it, it's actually your score in the model, not only on its ability to predict, but its ability to learn. Because you imagine these two models starting off and then the first data comes in and they both predict the first data and then they update and then they predict the next and they update. So there's actually a score in, in there, which is the ability to predict and the ability to learn. Mm -hmm. and, and that formally, that's what's captured um, in the prior predictive or marginal likelihood uh, for in, in terms of model in model comparison. As well as, you know, the inferential statements, you know, that Bayesians make, like the posterior distribution on a parameter of interest, is formally a statement about the kind of the missing population that you didn't have in your data set. So you have mm -hmm. a, a sample, a survey or a study that gives you a small data sample and you're looking to make predictive statements about inferential statements about the population, which, again, you can think about as a prediction of all of those hundreds of thousands or millions or billions of, of subjects that you didn't see as part of your study. Yeah. No, I, I, I really like uh, walk, yeah, 
I appreciate you walking us through that, and uh, especially with the the uh, analogy. Um, one uh, since we're on the topic of model building, um, I fear that this is a good time to talk about. You know, um, there's a nearly infinite number of things that you can incorporate into your model, um, and especially. Um, Actually, maybe we should even just, we'll, we'll leave out the clinical aspects for now, unless you think it's useful to bring them back in. But if we were just talking about essentially the um, modeling some aspect of uh, biology or physiology, um, figuring out how to prioritize what makes it into the model, what you're going to sort of dedicate your statistical brain power to, um, and what, what essentially which bits you're going to grapple with and struggle with. Um, missingness comes in here as well. But how do you start that prioritization process? Yeah. Um, I think it could, we start, you know, you kind of imagine you lay everything out on the table, which is, you know, again, comes back to what's the research question. Mm -hmm. you know, what's the primary, you know, purpose of inference? It could be quite broad, which is, oh, you know, how we try to understand what's the impact of age on, say, does age modulate uh, the impact of genetics, germline genetics on disease prevalence? So that's a question we ask fairly recently and that's a very broad question yeah and there's other ones which are kind of much more targeted uh which would be about does this particular gene have an influence uh in this particular system so but take the research question the one is dealing with and then look at the data assets you know what data do we have either in-house yeah mm -hmm. that we actually have our hands on or that we could get or, you know, it could even be an experimental design, which is, you know, how do we, what, you know, what data would we want to get in order to be able to answer the research question? Um, and then an iterative process of thinking about, you know, again, if we're Bayesian, you know, what's the generative model that would allow me, how could I start, what is the essential features? And it's, of course, you know, many people stress is the model. So we're trying to capture the essential properties of the system that are needed or that will help us answer uh, that research question. And then what are the important kind of features or structures that are obtained within the data? And then just kind of, you know, you just kind of start to put, put that uh, together. And, you know, known constraints are kind of particularly important. We might have, and I think what's interesting there is, is, and I think this has been a shift recently uh, within the kind of modeling communities. And I'm going to speak a very broad brush. You'll be forgiven for misstatements, but yeah, just what's your like gut feeling? Yeah. Is that we move away from hard constraint. So it might have been, you know, kind of like 10 years ago, we'd say, oh, uh, you know, we know that there's a hard constraint between these elements. Let's kind of put that into the system and then you're kind of working on a manifold. Mm -hmm. because there's, and it's much more about well let's just you know regularize the model mm -hmm. to kind of penalize you know or promote the model to find you know uh things close to that constraint and so i think that's a kind of an interesting thing is then about okay do we have kind of known properties you know, either mechanistic properties or, you know, fundamental properties like population genetics. We know how, you know, over generations, um, how recombination breaks down, say, you know, think of it as correlation across genomes broken mm -hmm. down in big chunks. 
well, rather than kind of put that as a hard constraint, let's just, you know, favor local smoothness across across genomes and and then start to kind of build those constraints and then just really just start in kind of early simulation uh, and and iteration of models and thinking very carefully about validation uh, of results and you know and and doing that before you've actually started to kind of uh, to, to generate results really thinking early on about well, A, about reproducibility, that's a kind of a different question, but you bake that in from day one. Otherwise, you know, it's a nightmare to go after <laughs> the end of your study. How can we make this reproducible? That's an absolute night. Mm -hmm. Start that from day one. And it, it's it's still, you know, it's, it's still a challenge, but it's much easier doing it that way. Um, and then thinking about how are we going to validate uh you know what observable data is out there, or you know observables that are going to support um, and give us feedback that we're on the right route. Yeah, can we uh, circle back on this uh, this hard constraint issue because this is really interesting. Um, the idea mm -hmm. that you know, um, you it's easy to understand the attraction saying um, like thou shalt hard constraint, you know, uh, to to your model because um, it's essentially it lets us believe on some level that we are, you know, strictly enforcing the scientific knowledge and the domain knowledge that we have in advance. Um, however, at the same time, you can understand that um, from um, not just a, explicitly from a modeling perspective, but even for things like an inference perspective, where if you know you, your, your inference algorithm must interact with the model that you've selected in the nature of the data. And if you are essentially, um, I'm sort of imagining like you're, you're forcing to walk on this like very thin line where, um, you know, obviously th thin lines create computational problems. They create like matrix inversion issues. Um, but by giving them that wiggle room, you might be able to circumvent those while also understands like, look, the system's complicated enough um, that we can't quite get it there. And we understand that there's essentially some other factors at play that essentially we won't be able to represent. And so that might be some, some reason. What is, um, what is, what is your gut feeling about why again, just sort of stepping away and sort of having these margins of errors? Is it just to account for the variability that you can't do? Or is it just to like bow down to your inference algorithm and say, yeah, I think on. I think partly computational, like optimization, mm -hmm. as we know, like trying to explore different model spaces or, you know, kind of optimize or, or marginalize over parameters. If we're trying to work under constraints, those become really complex optimization problems if we're trying to as you said like you're trying to walk on this manifold mm -hmm. and so in allowing yourself some wiggle room you know the also the kind of feature that you know if that is a fundamental aspect of the underlying system then then in some sense given enough data that constraint should come out you know if you build the model that respects that and is kind of um is centered around it then you're not going to go too far awry that that should kind of come out in the come out in the wash, in a way. And I saw sitting in a really interesting recent talk by um, uh, the one of the authors, actually the first named author on the Alpha Fold paper, the recent mm -hmm. uh, mine paper, who was talking about how you build now kind of the, the soft constraints into the architecture, and that's really interesting because statisticians. You know, we don't tend to think about the kind of almost physical architecture of the algorithm 
as being a property of the model, we tend to abstract, you know, we write down our equations and then we look to implement it in code. But, you know, there's this really kind of, there's a blurring now of line where actually the structure of the model, you know, the way that, you know, in deep learning, the way you layer these algorithms or the way you allow information to pass through different mm-hmm. parts of the model um, kind of can be can be utilized to, to kind of favor certain constraints over over others. And so he was talking as again about this notion of soft constraints and allowing the data really to kind of explore that. But I think for me it's mainly um, a little bit about robustness and a lot about the optimization is we're going to start the uh, we're going to start the model off here it's got to end up way up you know it's mm-hmm. got to travel uh, a long way in terms of the kind of optimization and and if you've got to walk that tightrope all the way along from the initialization uh, that makes it very hard and so you give yourself much greater chance of finding you know especially in complex models maybe not the optimal model space mm-hmm. point, uh, but certainly one that's um, uh, that's near optimal, and especially for the particular research question under consideration. Yeah. Hey, everyone. We're in the final stretch of our episode, and I'd really appreciate it if you could give me feedback on three things. First, what was your favorite question of the episode? What did I do right? Secondly, which questions should I have asked that I failed to? And third, what questions did this conversation bring up that you'd like answered in the future? Thanks, and enjoy the rest of the episode. If you don't mind me going on a uh, a slight tangent here, because um, I know that in talking to a lot of very like early career data scientists and statisticians, a lot of them tend to think of this is on the uh, AlphaFold issue, um, and when you talk about the architecture, um, that um, they they tend to think that the move from sort of the statistical type of learning to more the deep learning is that essentially um, that they become like liberated from scientific hypotheses and things like that, and one, it's like one. I know. I think the hypothesis-driven science is the science. I, I, I very. Di- I'm not become the idea of data-driven science because basically data can drive you anywhere. Um, but um, like I like using data, obviously, because that's what my job is. But I think the hypothesis should drive something. But the point I was wanting to get around to is we're talking about this, uh, the uh, the alpha fold issue, and they're how they're trying to incorporate soft constraints into the architecture. And one of the things I pointed out to people is saying, um, you know, the the best, the people developing deep learning algorithms think greatly about the architecture and essentially that the architecture, the algorithm is where they manifest their hypotheses. Um, that is saying like, you know, like you are, um, so there's there's one place uh, thinking about uh, like Andrew Zisterman, when he does his presentations, he says, ah, and here's where I'm putting in this architecture because I think I want to capture this type of thing. You know, that isn't hypothesis free. That's that's strong, strong hypotheses. Yeah. You're just trying to capture in the architecture. Um, another one is just very quickly, uh, Jan LeCun, when he's talking about optimization, he's saying, well, I think that the actual objective function has sort of like this sort of geometric shape to it, which is why we can essentially take a, you can just use some gradient method and just gets really where we want. And like, this is the nature of the, of the algorithm. And so I find it very interesting when the experts on these issues talk about these things, their hypotheses manifest in very specific ways. It's just not exactly the same terminology that we use um, for saying like variable X is the thing, you know, but anyway, uh, what, what, are, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think that's, it's absolutely the case. It's part of the kind of the art of uh, 
of kind of new than kind of new generation of models that have come mm -hmm. to with like you know deep learning being a kind of a principle uh the kind of uh, example of that is you know whereas you know historically you know statisticians we were trained as you you know you think about writing down the mathematical mm -hmm. form and then the kind of the implementation was was a you know well we just kind of push it in you know that's a separate mm -hmm. separate problem that can be solved independently you know first of all write down you know what the solution should look like and then you go off and code this and now it's much more as i said i think it's a really interesting area about how do you kind of match the kind of model building uh actually in, to incorporate knowledge domain knowledge mm -hmm. scientific knowledge about structures that we expect to see um within uh within the processes being modeled and also just very very careful uh, checking of data as well and uh, making sure the data is the right quality and of the right format and and getting that also is so important in these kind of increasingly complex problems yeah uh back to your comment about you know that uh thing where basically statisticians might think it's like oh you know i build my model and then there's you know the rest of it and that's a separate thing and it's not just that they think it's separate but it's, it's sort of like the the trivial it's like and then we're done because it's just all downhill from there um but i'm pretty sure like anyone who's like Honestly, try to try to get a Gaussian process to fit in real time without exploding. Uh, you know, basically second after second ad infinitum, you know, you'll really start thinking about the inference there because you you don't have those guarantees anymore. And a lot of those other challenges like how do I describe how do I set my model knowing that I'm gonna use, say, a map uh estimate versus um I'm going to integrate over. Um how where where how do I how do I accommodate that and also tell where I'm going to put my you know initial starting points because given that I know from the physiology that you're trying to end up in this place right here you know do I do a random initialization or do I pop up one starting point near where I bet the physiology is in land and then I just do a few around the perimeter to see if it just totally goes somewhere else um and then how do I compare those um you know things like that where if you're trying to set something some of these things when they run in real time and you don't have the advantage of hand tuning it yeah everything I'm comes into play. And, but, you know, and the kind of big push into probabilistic programming, again, yeah, is a exactly. really nice area that, that removes some of that really low level, oh, you've got to go and code that mm -hmm. from scratch to kind of allowing you to kind of abstract, again, a little bit out there and just think about what are the essential parts of the, you know, the kind of structures, the dependencies and putting those in. And then there's, fortunately, you're divorced a little bit from that very low level piece of okay right how are we actually going to kind of write the code in order to implement that <laughs> yeah it's funny you mentioned probabilistic programming because i'm actually i'm training up for a frank wood interview at some point the, the moment i can uh can face him and not just get just flattened by he he's he's one of those people who's like he's like a, a smart giant where like he can accidentally step on you without realizing it because um and some some of the insights that he has around these issues are just you know phenomenal um but yeah yeah i'm, I'm in training like a, a rocky video i'm gonna I'm get ready for my frank wood interview and then i'll finally have the courage to invite him on the show um yeah um so i think we've covered uh the the prioritization bit pretty well um if you don't mind me asking um specifically uh we'll split this up uh genetics and uh the clinic so that that's not and as in we're combining them but genetics or the clinic we'll say that um do these sort of considerations like clinical properties um 
Does this change the process at all? For example, with a clinic, you know that your algorithms can be interfacing with people. And you also know there's essentially some, something akin to a more of a social phenomena going on there with that data, because you know it is interacting with people. Um, it's closer to observational than I think a lot of people realize. Um, what do, what do you, what what is your feeling on that? Um, we'll just start with the clinic because I think more people can probably grasp that. Um, yeah. yeah, go on. I mean, I think there's you know one fundamental difference. Well, in the UK and I think in the US and, and other places will be about regulation. Mm -hmm. so regulators, as soon as if you're putting algorithms into the clinic, especially if they're making looking to make an individual kind of prediction or decision support are now under kind of uh, will, will in the uk will fall under medical regulation mm -hmm. so um so that's that's one mm -hmm. uh very specific aspect and and secondly i think much more if we're thinking about clinical decision support tools mm -hmm. thinking very carefully about issues of calibration about uncertainty quantification now of course you know you always need that in in others if we're doing scientific studies into kind of genetics but but often you know it might be trying to understand uh, what are the major you know genetic influences or genetic mechanisms that are contributing so getting the kind of uncertainty quantification absolutely spot on is is less important than if you're making you know a risk prediction mm -hmm. that's to be used in primary care where actually you know, there, of course, you know, you, you really care, you really worry about, you know, about calibration of your probability, you know, if you're making probability statements of risk. Mm -hmm. um, so that's one thing. Uh, secondly, thinking about much more as well about the deployment, in, if it's going to be you know, the deployment environment and about explainability or communication, I think are kind of two major areas. Um, Again, you know, going to go back to a little bit of, of kind of missing if we, you know, if we're training on clinical data set, you know, big aspect of kind of, inf you know, informative missing there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Know, the reason why a test, you know, was missing is, is actually informative for outcomes. And so mm -hmm. the data sets get much more kind of challenging in the, in the kind of, in the messiness in some yeah. sense or the structure. In, in the data than typically in kind of genetic and genomic studies. Yeah, I mean, just like as a quick example, if a doctor tests their patient for an infection, you know, that's essentially like a phase shift in what the sort of the nature of this patient might be, because the moment they're suspicious that you might have something like sepsis, um, that um, it, re it represents a, a fundamental difference. And also it sort of, it backtracks uh, where effectively, if you have this data point at this point and they've run Say, say, say they, they've done the uh, blood tests and what you need uh, um, just and uh, maybe they've ordered antibiotics or something like that. And it's sort of like they, uh, once they've investigated that route, you know that effectively the doctor's attention is on this specific sort of clinical hypothesis. And then one, you have to go backwards and think, okay, well, what led up to that? Because it, this is a different patient in nature. And then if it, even if it doesn't show up, say that you don't actually have the evidence there, it does mean that the doctor is interested to begin with and they're sort of probing around in that. Um, and also, you know, yeah, exactly. And um, standard of care and treatments change mm -hmm. 
course over time which is a good thing we get new and better treatments and populations change mm-hmm. you know makeup background ethnicity of populations uh, change and all of these kind of contribute uh, to kind of challenges of inference if you're kind of pulling together we worked on a big project with public health scotland on risk prediction um, in primary care and again these kind of issues about longitudinal stability all algorithms have shelf life and so how do we start to kind of think about that and how do we ensure that you know that we're building stable and robust algorithms that are well calibrated mm-hmm. and, and that that kind of yeah stability robustness and calibration is much more important well tends to be much more high on my priority list in the clinical algorithms than if we were looking at a scientific study that involves genetics and genomics yeah that is interesting actually um i'm not sure um recently i reread the uh doug altman uh produced a series of papers in 2008 2009 with the uh bmj british medical journal and um it was uh, him. It had Carol Moons. Um, it had uh, maybe Patrick Royston in it. Um, but anyway, I'll, I'll pop up the pictures uh, for those who are listening. Um, but and he talked about many of the sort of I would call them the inductive reasoning differences between these clinical predictive algorithms. Um, and it's interesting. You can sort of see the the priorities of essentially a previous decade's worth of research when essentially they're trying to say that. The predictive elements of these are super important versus now we're effectively everyone's so focused on prediction that many people aren't maybe even as interested in scientific discovery in the field um but uh and just to show this going somewhere more recently in 2016 there's a, a nips paper uh written by some folks at google i think it's called like the hidden technical debt of machine learning algorithms and what i think is interesting is getting back to what you're talking about the um with these You'll have clinical care shift. You'll have model shift. You'll data. Well, the the model stays the same. The data shifts. The meaning of the data shifts. And um, it's very interesting between this uh, Doug Altman paper um, from uh, years ago and this uh, more modern uh, Nips paper. How essentially they gave you a different checklist of things that you can check, so that like inductively you know that um, you know when to update your model and how to recalibrate it, things like that. And so it's it's a very interesting thing how. It's a scientific thought process to say, how do we know more? Yeah, and I think now, you know, we're talking with the kind of UK medical uh, regulators and a big issue around the whole AI, statistics AI field is around continual learning. Mm-hmm. And how do they even, how do you start to think about uh, that in a regulated um, space? You know, how can we trust algorithms that are, looking to uh, improve themselves mm-hmm. uh, over time while still ensuring that they meet all of the necessary per performance uh, metrics mm-hmm. uh, and it's, an, it's a you know obviously the more complex the model the more opaque the model the more challenging that gets because you you know if you if you train if you retrain your model or you update your model mm-hmm. based on a kind of on recent patient, you, you don't know how that's going to disrupt the model for other types of patients. Mm-hmm. And so, just thinking about very, I think there's a there's a really exciting and, and you know challenging area around um, surveillance of algorithms and ensuring that we can do continual learning safely. 
The other nice thing about that is that it sort of, it bootstraps machine learning folks that we will essentially never work ourselves out of a job because we're either creating the algorithm that monitors something or creating the algorithm that monitors the monitor. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it will need at least five or six steps, uh, definitely. But yet it, it is an interesting, and it gets, I think it gets back to the fundamental aspect where I, I think that one of the things I really love about the machine learning community is that they are scientific. Um, they're scientific on their domain. Uh, but, you know, this issue of how can we essentially learn inductively about our models and then how do we control them? How do we know when to update them and things like that? I think that uh, the science, the true, like the statistical science and machine learning science, that the science around these is where we, is, is where it really comes to a head, where we're uh, understand, learning more about our models and not just considering fixed bits of information and time but there's a learning process behind it. Um, so uh, I know we only have a few minutes left, but um, are there any important questions that I forgot to ask? You know a lot of stuff. Um, you know what your priorities are. What, what did I forget to ask that's important? Um, I think the interplay between or the increasing importance of causal inference mm -hmm. in biomedical uh, uh, and statistics and um, yeah, how causal inference kind of interfaces with classic, like non-causal kind of statistical models. It's something that is always kind of ticking over in my mind, mm -hmm. uh, especially recently, actually, where there's been a you know, big push into causal inference, a lot of really interesting, exciting new results coming through. Mm -hmm. So that's an area that's a kind of, I think, an, a really exciting kind of question and area uh, where where we'll see um, a coming together. I think increasingly people, Previously, historically, people thought, well, there's statistical modeling, kind of causal modeling. I think increasingly kind of coming together into more kind of unified paradigm of, of just, you know, again, this idea, what's the research question? Does the data support it? You know, how can we build kind of opt optimal statements? So, so that, would be a, that would be a question you didn't ask. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think it's quite exciting. Yeah. Do you think that... Um... So there's one aspect of essentially like causal reasoning, and I view that uh, very paired with things like experimental design and making sure that we're actually, uh, and don't worry, correct me if I'm wrong on these things because uh, I'm not as knowledgeable as I ought to be. But if that if, if there's the area of causal reasoning where you're simply thinking about these things and trying to set up your algorithms so that so they can work in some causal way. And then on the other hand, we essentially have algorithms that are designed for the purpose of causal reasoning, are those coming together? Are they at a, are they at a sufficient step right now where we should say causal reasoning is a fundamental aspect of algorithms? Or causal algorithms are fundamental. A concrete example mm -hmm. is in clinical risk prediction, where you know the traditionally you know statistics community builds risk prediction algorithms that might sit in primary care. But we know how doctors operate with these algorithms as with face with a patient, they will start playing with the inputs. Oh, you know, this patient in front of like if they were a bit if they lost some weight, you know, what would their risk be? But but we know that um that that's incorrect. You know, because that that's a, then a causal question, which is, you know, if the patient had been lighter. Mm -hmm. you know, or less heavy, then what would a, what would their risk be? So I think there's the, this kind of really interesting kind of merger between, you know, 
population kind of risk prediction algorithms are really important because they do highlight patients at high risk, but then modifiable risk factors kind of become super interesting, which is how can we communicate to a patient how they might improve their risk or, you know, against uh, a particular outcome. And so that's where this kind of interest in merger. And again, this enter into this question of, you know, does the data support it? You know, mm-hmm. both data will support predictive question on risk, but you know, there's a very different statement about will the data support a causal interpretation or identify identification of modifiable uh, risk factors. So, so that, yeah, that that's an area which I, I kind of see. I think a lot of really interesting things to be done. And now, I guess, so the Machiavellian question is that because now with CRISPR, that genetics has become a modifiable factor. <laughs> I think we're some way, you know, uh, uh, we're some way off. But I think in terms of, you know, even like communication mm-hmm. of risk is that if you're told you're at risk of a particular condition, the interesting, you know, the natural questions, patient questions are why, you know, why am I at risk? And then the other question, you know, is how can I modify that risk? Mm-hmm. Um, and then, then that kind of enters into the kind of, you know, the, the, the causal domain. So I think that's in my mind kind of always interesting kind of entertaining. And a lot of problems that we do is kind of entertaining. What's the underlying, is there an underlying causal question uh, aligned to the kind of statistical modeling that we're building? Well, I, I can say one thing, a certain Cambridge-based expert on communication statistical risk has been invited to the show. That's However, good. very busy. Um, and so we can only hope in the future. But if, if anyone happened to know or have a way to convince such such an expert, their email and that uh, working that out would be amply appreciated. So uh, you know, not not say anything, but yeah, um, if a certain Cambridge-based communicator of statistical risk were willing to come on the show, that would be pie in the sky. Uh, I will let them know. All right, cool. Um, so the fu- the final question, um, which I ask everyone is, uh, what is the topic that you'd like to see the statistics community debate? Uh, representativeness of data. I think it, uh, in in my world, especially around you know health and well-being, uh, and just you know we're in this incredible time where measurement is just becoming no longer the bottleneck. Mm-hmm. Largely speaking, we can sequence genomes really cheaply. We've got Fitbits and wearables, and so as we start to accumulate this data, unfortunately, we know that the greatest burden falls on the least advantaged uh, uh, in society. But it's more so than that. It's the, they're, they're the parts of society where we have least representative data. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's a real, there's an issue here that yes, we're gathering these kind of increasingly rich data sets. But, you know, we, we know that we hit underrepresentativeness of data of, the, of those populations that are most in need in some sense. Mm-hmm. And the imprint and and so as a as a community of statisticians, how do we communicate that out to policymakers about the important you know the importance that you have to proactively go out and generate representative data? But then secondly, how do we build algorithms? You know, there's a technical component of that which are robust and people talk about domain shifts and like out of sample kind mm-hmm. of generalizability, but we know the kind of directions. You know, because we can characterize, you know, a lot of things we know about where the underrepresentativeness is coming from or non-representativeness of the data. 
So how do we build algorithms that give us a sense of trustworthiness and be able to apply an algorithm, you know, that might be built on, you know, data from certain sectors of society, mm-hmm. those sectors of society who t- typically sign up for clinical studies and then apply those results or the inference from those algorithms to sectors of society who are less um, forthcoming in terms of clinical trials. How do we gain trust? in the robustness of those results. I think it's a really important question. I'd love for us as a community to tackle that head on. Yeah, I guess the head on bit is the difficult bit because it also is like very uncomfortable. Um, It is obviously an uncomfortable topic in many aspects because it does address essentially like societal failings and uh, things like that, that, you know, especially as statisticians, we do have an advantage that, you know, we can sort of stay in our cubicle and stick with the numbers and that can preoccupy the entirety of our existences um but yeah for the issue of the debate and having that conversation head on that that is um that is the the courage requiring aspect well yeah and it's about like you know communicating you know what is the uh what is the operating population for this model and Mm -hmm. you know and often we will find if we're building that off clinical databases we need to be very very clear and precise that this algorithm or model is built on this population mm-hmm. of, of, and that population is not necessarily representative for for the population for which you would wish to apply it from so it's being very clear on the kind of caveats and you know uh, operating um uh, operating kind of protocols or populations for which we build our models yeah maybe just as a, a very quick and probably trivial example of this um is uh uh Ben Goldacre in his book, uh, Bad Science, he talks about he, what he called probably like one of the best nutritional studies uh, that ever came about. It's like seven years. It changed how the family did things, how the individual did things, had a, a, basically a control and everything like that, um, a control group. And um, the point he made was the people who sign up for a seven-year nutritional change study are not the type of people who need help in this nature. And obviously that's trivial compared to essentially the problems that we're alluding to here yeah exactly Uh, and i think you know all the way through you know these big as i said these longitudinal cohorts that we've Mm -hmm. got the type of people who sign up to say yeah you can you know take my genome and you can take my medical records and follow me up over time are not necessarily representative of the population for which we wish to rank him that's very good well uh this is professor Chris Holmes of Oxford University and the Alan Turing Institute. Thanks so much for stopping by today. Thank you very much. Hey guys, it's Glenn. Thanks for your time today. I hope you liked today's episode. If you did, please consider smashing that like button. It's the single simplest, fastest way to make sure that YouTube shows this video to more people. If you really want to go crazy, consider subscribing or going to our website and joining the mail list. We won't go totally crazy beyond that. Forward this to a friend or colleague who you think might enjoy this too. We're a small channel and every bit helps. Our next episode will be coming out next week. So in the meantime, feel free to look around the channel and see other videos that might be of interest. As a quick disclaimer, the views expressed in the show do not represent anything other than the people saying those words, views, etc. like that. It doesn't mean anything about their employers or their employer's views or some thing about their employers or their neighbor's cat or anyone else not saying the words. And in fact, given that people tend to change their views when they're thoughtful enough, it might not even represent the views of the speaker by the time you're hearing the episode. So definitely come back and see if they've changed their views at a later date. They also don't represent the views of our sponsors. Thank you to our sponsors. You can check them out on our website.